And Paul qualifies that statement by saying those things that are in heaven and that are on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, Christ is over them all. And so Jesus was with God, actively involved in the creation of this world, not just upon the earth, but the entire universe. And, and that really blows our minds today with the inventions of telescopes, the Hubble telescope, and we can see all the different galaxies that are out there, and Christ is over them all. Visible and invisible. Some that used to be invisible is now visible to us. And yet Christ is still over them all. You're looking too far For that need you have inside You're on a big merry-go-round And it's taking you for a ride Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. All right, good morning. We're back in the book of Colossians, back in chapter 1 again. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20 today. Going to look at the preeminence of Christ, and I determined as we began the study of Colossians that I try to fill in a little history as we go. And when you get an introduction into a new book, you could just spend the whole one Sunday just doing an introduction and not really get into the study of the book itself. So I decided at the beginning of this study that I would just kind of kind of fill us in a little bit as we go concerning the background. About the Colossians last week, we learned about its location, 100 miles uh, away from Ephesus, and it sat in a, uh, not a perfect triangle, but a crude triangle between Colossians, or Colossae, I should say, uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis, all three of these cities named in this book. Of course, we never hear of Hierapolis any other place in the Bible, but we do Laodicea. Jesus wrote a letter to them. And Paul mentions them as he closes out this letter here concerning the ministry that was taking place. He actually wrote an epistle to the Laodiceans. Now, what a find that would be to have the epistle of Laodicea. Paul encourages the Colossians to not only read this letter that he had written to them, but he said, share this letter with those who are in Laodicea and read the letter that I have written to them as well. And so he was telling them to share. And we'll look at that when we get to chapter 5. We also learned last week that it is believed at this point that Paul had never visited the city of Colossae. The ministry itself is believed to have been established when Paul ministered in Ephesus. He spent two years there, two plus years there, but 
Acts 19, 9 and 10 tells us that he reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannius, which continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. The theory is, based off of Paul mentioning Epaphras uh, several times in this little epistle, that Epaphras brought the gospel to those who were in Colossae, and he had a great love for this area. We learned that uh, throughout this epistle, that Epaphras had a great love for them. Onesimus, that we met in Philemon, he's also part of this city, and he will be mentioned as well. Philemon himself lived in Colossae, and, and although he never visited the city, at least that's the thought, he did have plans to go there because when he wrote his letter to Philemon, which was written and delivered at the same time, there in Philemon 22, Paul said, speaking to Philemon, but you, meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. So Paul is in prison as he's writing this, and he's desiring to be released, of course, but he's wanting to visit the church in Colossae. And he doesn't say it in the book of Colossae, Colossae but, or Colossians, I should say, the city is Colossae. But he does tell Philemon, who lived in that same city, I'm hoping to be granted to you. I hope that I get delivered and make a room ready for me. Now, there's another thing that's at play, and, and I believe the verses that we're looking at today, verses 15 through 20, and even as we look into a little further next week as we conclude chapter 1, Paul's dealing with the issue of Gnosticism at this time. There's two great issues that was going on during the early church. Judaism and Gnosticism were two occultic worships that were basically plaguing the church. Judaism was saying that... Uh, Unless a believer was circumcised and kept the law in the Jewish format, they, they weren't truly saved, that Christ's redemption only brought you so far. Gnosticism kind of said the same thing, didn't deal with the issue of circumcision or the keeping of the Mosaic law, although they may have used some of Judaism in there as well. They taught that there was greater knowledge. Gnostic, uh, it comes from the Greek word gnosko, it means to know. And they were saying that they had a greater knowledge, thus that their Christianity was superior than the average believer that just believed in Jesus Christ. That there is a greater knowledge that needed to be learned to be truly saved. And, and so this was going on. Uh, Gnostics believed that Jesus did not come in the flesh, and so Paul battles that. Here in this book, John will battle it as well. In the Gospel of John and 1 John, he deals with Christ coming in the flesh. Uh, Gnostics also believe that the material world itself was evil, that God could not have created it. Thus, Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh, that he was more like a phantom, that he was here, they could see him, they could touch him, but if you would actually look close, he wasn't actually touching the ground when he walked, and you know, he's more of a phantom than anything else. Their belief system was so twisted that they, instead of uh, trying to stay away from the evil, they believed that all flesh was evil. They decided since all flesh is evil, we might as well give in to the lust of the flesh and, and just go with it and not worry about it and have your fleshly side and the spiritual side. 
And to be honest, there's a lot of people who believe that same thing today, pretty much. They want to believe in Christ and salvation and eternity and heaven, and yet they live as if there is no Christ, there is no salvation, there is no eternity, there is no heaven. James Orr was one of Scotland's most uh, prominent 19th century theologians, and he wrote this about the Gnostics. The fantastic product of the blending of certain Christian ideas, speculations, imaginings derived from a medley of sources, Greek, Jewish, Parsic, philosophies, religions, theosophies, and mysteries, in a period when the human mind was in a kind of ferment. It involves, as the name denotes, the claim to knowledge, as I said, gnosko, to know, knowledge of a kind that the ordinary believer was incapable and in the possession of which salvation in the full sense consisted. And so to be fully saved, you needed this Gnosticism. Now, Paul is battling against the Gnostics as he writes this letter, and I believe he's specifically targeting them when he wrote verses 15 through 18 especially, and we're going to drop down to verse 20 as well today, 15 through 20. These verses are so rich. I was imagining this morning as I was reading through once again that there are probably some doctors in theology that have written theses on just verses 15 through 18. We're only going to touch on a few of these things, but today I want us to see the personage of, of Christ, the profession of Christ, the position of Christ, and the peace of Christ, that Christ is preeminent over all things. And so let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read 15 through 20 and open us in prayer. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And Father, we pray that you'd just bless your teaching today, your word as it goes forth, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to have ears to hear, Lord, that your spirit would help me to speak the words that you would have for us this day that we live in. And we thank you, Lord, for the great servants of old, like the Apostle Paul, whom you worked through and guided his thoughts, his hands to pen this letter. And also those who have been faithful to present the word to us today as we have it in this format, Lord. They've been faithful to hold it true and to keep the truth of your gospel present even to this day. So help us, Lord, to learn here in the 21st century, those things that were written in the first century of your marvelous truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we first want to look at in verse 15, the personage of Christ. And we're speaking about Christ himself, that he is the image of God in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the writer of Hebrews 
has such a similar reference in chapter 1, verse 3, as he opens up his epistle. It's one of the reasons that many argue that Paul is also the writer of Hebrews. We know in the epistles that 13 epistles were written by Paul. They were signed by Paul. We know that even at the close of this book, the book of Colossians, Paul says, this is my salutation of with my own hand. He says, I, I, I wrote this. This is me. This is Paul. The writer of Hebrews never did that. There are some great similarities. We know that the writer, was, he speaks about his chains. He speaks about prison. He speaks about Timothy, a beloved son. He's very similar to the things that Paul often says throughout his other 13 epistles. But this he also says at the beginning concerning Christ in Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we know that the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus because who's purged our sins by his own hand? It's Jesus who had done this by himself and Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father there on high. But he is the express image, the writer of Hebrews says, of his person. And here Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God. And later on, Paul will refer to Jesus' creative work, as we'll read about today here in Colossians. And he goes on in Hebrews 1.3. He's the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. And Paul will write in Colossians, in him all things consist. So Jesus holding all things together. And so the similarity between the two has caused many of the theologians to believe that Paul is the author of both. We can't be sure this side of heaven. We can have these theories until we're there in heaven, and we can ask Paul, so Paul, who is the author? And he might say, well, it was Apollos. Some argue that. I don't know if it is or not, but we won't know for sure until we get to heaven. But we see that although Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, as John declares it there in John 1.14, he was and is also the image of the invisible God, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person, the express image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Now, Jesus taught us in John 4.24 that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So Jesus then becomes God's representative, a revelation of his divine characteristics for us. So if we want to know what God is like, and God is spirit, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We want to understand the Father. We need to look to Jesus. And Jesus argued the same thing with Philip. In John 14, 9 and 10, he said, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. That Jesus argues with Philip, not arguing, just stating the fact that I've been with you, how long? Three years, three and a half years? And do you not know that when you see me, you see a manifestation of the Father. 
Understand that it's the Father who is in me and working through me. John would write in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And so Jesus becomes that manifestation of God the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. But He's also, in the second half of that verse, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, The word for firstborn in the Greek It can mean firstborn. It's used of Jesus in Luke 2, 7, when it says, And she brought forth a son, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothing. That's the same Greek word that's found here, firstborn. But here, the meaning is different. It's not referring to first as in the birth order, but it's stressing the position, the relationship to the father, first in priority. We might say the prototype. He is the first in priority with the Father. We know that in the Bible, there are the examples of firstborn status who were not actually firstborn. Uh, Jacob and Esau. It was Esau who was the older brother, but it was Jacob who received the status of the firstborn and the blessing of the firstborn. And so it doesn't always mean in order of birth, David, the king, he was the eighth of Jesse's sons, and yet God said, you're my firstborn over Israel. I'll make you a greater king than all the kings. If you look at all the kings of Judah and of Israel, when I say Israel, I mean David and Solomon, and then the kingdom was divided, and then you had the nation, ten tribes to the north, that was Israel, and the two tribes to the south, that was Judah. Now, the ten tribes to the north, they were always compared to the first king, Jeroboam, and never to David. But the kings of the south were always compared to David, always compared to David. And so David took the priority over all the other kings. And this is the firstborn over all creation. He, it stresses the position that Jesus has in relationship to the father. He's not created, he's not birthed by God, but as the son of the triunity, he stands as his father's heir. He is preeminent over all. He's the mediator over all things. In other words, Christ is first in position in supremacy over all creation. And we have a few verses that speak about the firstborn in connection to Christ. In Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body. The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. And so connecting firstborn and the preeminence there together concerning Christ. And we'll look at verse 18 in a moment. Hebrews 1.6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the firstborn, let all the angels of God worship him. It's Christ the firstborn. Once again, the writer of Hebrews is right on track with Paul here in Colossians concerning the firstborn. In Revelation 1.5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And so the personage of Christ, Jesus is in the image of the invisible God, God's representative to mankind. And he's also the firstborn or first in position 
in supremacy over all creation. Also the profession of Christ. If you notice, I got the P things. I got all my P's in order today. Uh, preeminence of Christ, the person of Christ, the profession of Christ. It wasn't that way when I first put my notes together. I had a W in place number two. I had the work of Christ. And I'm thinking there's got to be a word that speaks about work that begins with a P. I found it. It was profession. Profession, we think of profession of faith quite often, but profession also speaks about the work that you have, the job that occupies uh, your time. And here it's describing Jesus and his profession in connection to the creative work of all things. In verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. Specifically, Paul dealing with Gnosticism and stressing that Jesus is over all things here. And it doesn't matter where you're talking about. And again, we read from Hebrews just a moment ago. Hebrews 1.6, he's the firstborn into the world. Let all the angels of God worship him, that Jesus is in priority over the angels and that over all his creation. And, and Paul dealing with this, saying that if you think that it's only over some of the creation, then he qualifies that statement by saying those things that are in heaven and that are on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, Christ is over them all. And so Jesus was with God, actively involved in the creation of this world, not just upon the earth, but the entire universe. And, and that really blows our minds today with the inventions of telescopes, the Hubble telescope, and we can see all the different galaxies that are out there, and Christ is over them all. Visible and invisible. Some that used to be invisible is now visible to us. And yet Christ is still over them all. Over all the various creatures that they might possess. And it doesn't matter what place or position any of us might have. Whether visible or invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. Christ is over them all. Solomon, he described a bit of the creative work of Jesus in Proverbs, when he was writing in Proverbs chapter 8 concerning our Lord, he personifies wisdom there. And he says in verses 27 through 31, When he prepared the heavens, I was there. And when he drew the circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, and when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the seas its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him as a master craftsman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. I like that, the Lord saying, I was beside him like a master craftsman. The Lord was there. He created all things, for by him all things created in heaven and on the earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And so today we've seen the personage of Christ, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, God's representative to mankind. He's also the firstborn or first in position or supremacy 
over all his creation. And Paul teaches us here that Christ is preeminent over all things, over his creation, but also over his church. And Father, thank you so much for your word that you've given us today here in Colossians chapter 1. And I pray, Lord, that it would just be an encouragement to us to know that Christ is in all and over all, and that, Lord, that you are in control of all things. And Father, we thank you that you are holding all things together, and we thank you, Lord, that even in our own lives, this is true, that without you, Lord, things would fall apart. We need you, and we cry out to you this morning. Whether, Lord, we're crying out in faith, never believing, never receiving you, Lord, and we want to do that today, Lord, we want to give opportunity for those who have never received Jesus as their Savior to come forward to receive you this day. Or perhaps, Lord, we're just in the midst of some just some heavy battles that is going on. It could be physical or spiritual or emotional, Lord, but we want to just cry out to you, Lord, that you're overall, and we're crying out for your peace this day to rule over our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today.